This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. And you can turn in your Bible again to that story in Mark chapter 10 that the video did such a great job of explaining. I like the Raiders. This morning, this is the second message in our series that we're in right now called Be Rich. Be Rich. Last week was Be Rich Because You Are. We talked about the fact that everybody in this room is rich. We may not consider ourselves that because we don't consider ourselves rich because we are always able, in this country anyway, to compare ourselves to someone who is richer, don't we? I guess the only people in this country that do consider themselves rich because there's really nobody else to compare themselves to are Bill Gates and Oprah. You know, who, I mean, who else is there? They're at the top of the food chain. But the rest of us, well, I'm not rich. Oh, yeah, we talked about last night why we are rich. Um, and using just a simple illustration of how we got to church this morning. How many of you woke up this morning uh, to some kind of an electric, uh, battery-powered electric alarm clock? Woke you up this morning. Raise your hand. All right? Yeah, you got electricity in your house. You're rich. Most of the world... A lot of the world does not uh, have that privilege. Jesus was setting on a journey, it tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he was a man that we know, if you read later on in the story, verse 22, he was a wealthy man, because verse 22, Mark tells us, he had many possessions. If you have many possessions, how many of you have many possessions this morning? Raise your hand. I do. I have lots of stuff. I mean, I had to build two storage buildings in my backyard to to hold all my stuff that I have. My attic is full of my stuff. Um, we, you know, our, my bedroom closet is full of my stuff. If you look underneath my bed, it's full of my stuff. I got stuff everywhere. I have many possessions, so I'm a wealthy man. So the story is talking to me too. He had just heard Jesus tell his disciples the story before this that the kingdom of God belongs to people like little children. Remember the story, the little children came to him and the disciples rebuked them and Jesus sat them on his knee and, and, um, and this man, and, and blessed them. And this man, this rich man, he genuinely is a seeker. He's got a serious question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He's, he, but he knows I'm not a child. I can't go sit on Jesus' knee. But I want to get in on the eternal life. I want, like these little children, I want to get in on the kingdom. So he asked Jesus this question, probably one that most in the crowd were thinking as well. How do I inherit eternal life? And you might be wondering that about yourself. How do I get to eternal life? How do I know that I'm in God's forever family? So Jesus responded to him and he said, why do you call me good? Because he's called him good master, good teacher, good rabbi. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, and that's God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father 
and your mother. And so Jesus responds to his question about eternal, how to inherit eternal life. He responds with another question. And Jesus frequently did that. You ask Jesus a question, he asks you another question. Why do you call me good? No one's good but one, and that is God. Now please understand, Jesus was not saying, whoa, 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 slow, back up. I'm not God. Now that happened with the missionaries in the book of Acts with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. They were trying to, the the Greeks thought they were Greek gods come down from heaven. Whoa, no, no, no. We're just men. Jesus doesn't say, well, no, no, I'm not God. He wasn't correcting the man. He didn't say only God is good and I'm not him. He wasn't correcting the man at all, but he was affirming what he was what this man said. He was essentially saying to him, bingo, I am good because I am God. And you want to get into my kingdom. Do I understand you correctly? And Jesus asks him, well, do you know the commandments? Well, he's a good Jewish boy brought up in the synagogue. Of course, I know the commandments. And Jesus goes through a list of the commandments. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't cheat. Don't lie, honor your parents. By the way, where do those commandments come from? They are part of the Ten Commandments, aren't they? But they're not all of them. These are the ones, with the exception of, as we saw in the video, don't covet. These are the ones that that are about how you and I relate to one another. How we relate to each other. The rest of the Ten Commandments are about how we relate to who? God, you know, no other idols and so forth. Don't use his name in vain. No other God before me. Those, the other commandments are how we relate to God, but Jesus doesn't include them here. And he said to him, the man responded, well, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Since I was a kid, I've kept these commandments. Now, think with me. If salvation and getting into the kingdom was based on our own goodness, this guy might get in. Because he says, great, I've kept all of these. Now let me ask you a question. It's not a trick question. But you look at those commandments. Is it possible that he has kept all of these commandments? And I would say to you the answer is yes. It is possible that he has kept all of these commandments. Possible. Probable, maybe not. Possible, maybe. But Jesus wanted him to know that keeping commandments does not give us eternal life. Jesus knew what this man was lacking. And so he looked at him and Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You kept all these commandments. That's great. Jesus didn't say liar, liar, pants on fire. And Jesus would have known. He said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. But he was stunned at this demand. And he went away grieving. Why? Because he had many possessions. And Jesus just told me, I've got to give it all away. I can't have eternal life. I would grieve too. If somebody told me there's no escape from hell for you. He went away grieving. And with that seemingly impossible requirement, the man left. His heart was crushed. So Jesus turns and looks at his disciples who are there, and they're going, wow, who? If a rich man can't, I mean, rich people, they can do, you know, I mean, they 
Obviously, they're rich because obviously, you ever think this? God has blessed them. And Jesus just told him he can't get in. He looks to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Jesus said it was really hard. Really hard for people with wealth to have eternal life. And that really puzzled them. Maybe one reason it puzzled them was because it's easy to think that rich people, as I said, they're rich because God has blessed them more than the rest of us. Uh, But do you know of any really rich people who are anything but godly? Do you know any people like that? Sure you do. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he gives them this mental picture. He gives them this impossible scenario. And now maybe some of you are thinking, wait a second. Jesus said it's almost impossible for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God. And last week you told me I was rich. Am I in trouble here today? Am I in trouble for all eternity? Well, it depends. You see, Jesus knew the trap of hoping in riches. He said more in his teaching about money and possession than he did about heaven and hell combined. He knew material possessions and gaining wealth would be a major barrier to living a godly life. Even in the lives of believers, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 from the word of God says, give me neither poverty nor wealth, the writer says. Feed me with the food I need. I ate some stuff yesterday I didn't need, by the way. Did you? Somebody brought a nice cake yesterday to the call. I didn't need that. Give me, feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you. If I've got too much, I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? I've got everything I need. Why do I need God? Or I might have nothing. I might have absolutely nothing. And because I have nothing, I might steal profaning the name of my God. See, Jesus and the word of God teaches us to depend on him. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, our daily bread, the bread I need today. We ended last Sunday with Paul's warning that one of the trappings of wealth is hoping in your wealth. And 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present age. That means right now you've got wealth. Instruct you, us, not to be arrogant, to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. So there are negative side effects as we brought up last Sunday, of wealth that all of us are prone to, arrogance. Arrogance leads to detached relationships. Nobody wants to be close to an arrogant person. So it separates us from people, arrogance does. Another side effect of negative side effect of wealth is misplaced hope, and that leads to crushing disappointment. If you know your American history, you know that about the stock market crash of 1929. You know about, and maybe you don't know that far back, maybe you know back just a few years ago about Enron and how their employees lost all their retirement, all their investment due to scandal, over $2 billion 
and people's retirement funds gone. And the truth about money is very simply this. You can remember this, easy come, easy go. And if your hope is in your portfolio, if it goes, so goes your hope and you become hopeless and nobody wants to be there. Misplaced hope leads to crushing disappointment. And the third negative aspect of wealth is uncertainty. Uncertainty, which leads to constant fear. After the stock market crash, people were afraid to put their money into banks anymore because the banks lost it all. They were afraid to put invest their money in, in stock. And there are some of us here who can tell stories of our grandparents and maybe our great-grandparents. You've heard these stories about them. Maybe you saw it with your own eyes. Who, had, who in their lives, they hid thousands of dollars in cash. Here and there and everywhere around their house, under the mattress, in the attic, in a place under the floorboard in the house, but they hid their money in their house because they didn't trust the bank. Of course, what happens if your house catches on fire? Yeah, so, and, and, and that, all that says is wealth is uncertain. Jesus in, Mar, in Matthew six nineteen said, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The Bible's pretty clear that there's nothing, please get this, the Bible's very clear. There is nothing wrong with acquiring wealth. There's nothing sinful about being rich. Now, there are people in this country that will tell you the rich guys are the bad guys, but I want to tell you the Bible says nothing of the sort. I know some people have nothing that are pretty wicked, pretty bad. What God is concerned about for each of us is how we use that wealth, what we do with what he gives us, and that we see it as something that we've been given so that we might with it glorify God. I want you to read with me all of verse 17. The rest of all of verse 17, I read part of it a moment ago. Let's read this all together, right? This is from 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Did you get that last one there? God wants you and me to enjoy whatever wealth we have. And here's the barrier that kept the rich man in Mark 10, in that story, from eternal life. And get this, his hope was in the wrong place. His hope was in the wrong place. The commands that Jesus didn't quote him, as I said, are all about our relationship with God. And when Jesus said to him, well, here's what you, do, you need to do. Here's the one thing you lack. Sell everything, everything that you're hoping in, because that's where his hope was. Sell everything that you're hoping in and give it away and follow me. What that required of this man was a major shift in his religion. Because up to this point, his religion it was in how good I am and how much I have in the bank. That's what I hope in. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. His God was wealth. His wealth provided him with a lifestyle he, enjoy, he enjoyed. It gave him a prominent status in town. His future, as far as he could see, was secure because he had money in the bank and he had properties and he had investments. That was where he anchored his hope. 
And then Jesus said, here's the deal, bud. You really want to go to heaven? You really want to be in my kingdom? You're going to have to put your hope in me instead. The man couldn't let go of all he had to trust Christ. And he went away grieving. Without total trust in Christ, please get this. If you're looking for the kingdom, to be in the kingdom of God, if you want to know you're in God's forever family, understand this. <coughs> Excuse me. Without total trust in Christ for eternal life, there is no salvation. None. There is only, you can only have but one God. And if money is your God, guess who isn't? You can fill in the blank. Christianity is a new birth. Christianity includes new values and a new worldview, especially for the rich. You see, the poor, they never learn to trust in money. Why not? Because they don't have any. You know, you're not going to trust it if you don't have it. They know money runs out. They, they understand that because they may get a paycheck on Friday and they know by next Thursday it's gone. And so they got to get that check that next Friday to keep on going. They're living paycheck to paycheck and, and burning the candle at both ends and trying to stretch everything and it's not quite meeting. They understand money runs out, so they don't trust in money. They know I can't depend on money, so my hope better be in a different source. Well, Rick, should I, should I, based on what you're saying here, should I invest money, for example, in a retirement fund? Is that okay? Should I put money in a 401k or in some kind of an annuity or IRAs? Should I have a savings account? Should I have an emergency fund? Should I have life insurance? And here's a real challenge for us as wealthy people. Financial stewardship, and the word stewardship simply means managing something that belongs to someone else. We'll get to that later. Financial stewardship and planning are important. We're supposed to be responsible with what we have, with our money. Retirement funds, life insurance, savings are things, certainly, that we need to consider. The Proverbs, for example, says... Check out the ants. Figure, they figured this out. Proverbs 30, 25, ants are creatures of little strength. Yet they store up their food in the summer. Why do they store up their food in the summer? Because they know winter's coming and there won't be any. So they've set aside. They've planned. They've been responsible. I've counseled with families who are grieving with the sudden unexpected death of a loved one and they realize all of a sudden they've got to provide a funeral, they've got to do a burial and so forth. And those things are not cheap, by the way. And all of a sudden they realize we're going to have to bury money to pay for this funeral because he or she had no life insurance, had no assets at all. That's irresponsible. We need to figure those things out, listen, without putting our hope in them. If I say it's a challenge, I say it's a challenge, this, this whole thing, because I know it personally. And, and boy, this hit me great. I'm preparing for this message and I get email pops up. Rick, you can check out your retirement account today. We got the latest figures for you. So I open up the email and it opens up this spreadsheet and tells me everything that 
I, I get from I, I have it with Guidestone, which is the Southern Baptist annuity group that takes the retirement money that Nag said church generously provides, contributes for me, and they invest it. I have a what's called a 403b, which for people who work in nonprofit is the same as a 401k that some of you have. I have a 403b, and, and Gail and I have invested some other funds, extra funds, in, in some Roth IRA accounts. So it's really tempting to me, especially depending on how the stock market is doing. The stock market has been plummeting. I don't even want to open that up and look at it, you know, because I know it's taken a hit. But if it's been doing really good for me, it's tempting to look at that balance and think either, whoa, dude, you're sitting pretty right now, or... I'm never going to be able to live on that. See, trust in money is a great cause, can be a great cause of worry. So I have to discipline myself to pretty much ignore it all and trust simply in the Lord. But the poor, and by poor again, I mean those people that I saw living in that landfill in South Africa. The poor, the really destitute which we discovered last week is nobody in this room. The poor are not the only ones who never seem to put their hope in riches. There are other people who don't put their hope in riches as well. Some middle-class people who, who are rich, some millionaires who are really rich, and some who are rich simply, barely, but only when compared to the third world poor. Some of those folks, and those are some of you in this room, have learned not to be arrogant, but to be humble and generous and thankful You've learned not to worry, but to put your confidence in the Lord. Well, how'd they learn that? How do you learn that? Last week we said it has to be learned. How can I learn that? Look with me at verse 18 there in 1 Timothy 6. Paul says, instruct them, who them are the rich in this present age, that he said in verse 17. Instruct them, that would be us. Instruct us, Timothy, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous Willing to share. Let me ask you a question. What if we all obeyed that command? Here's what happens if our hope is in our riches. We, we begin to hoard. You've all seen that TV show, haven't you, about the hoarders? Oh, I can't watch it. Because I think that's where I'm going, Lord. You know, I may be like that one day. But, you know, I, I referred a moment ago to those folks that lived through the Great Depression, our grandparents and great-grandparents. And if you knew any folks like that, you know, that generation, and a few of them are still around, they never waste anything. They don't throw anything away. Their attics, their garages, their sheds, their storage units are packed with stuff they would and never will use. And the problem with hoarding is that it kills any prospect of being generous because if you're a hoarder, you're constantly asking yourself the question, but what if something happens? You know, what if something happens? So the antidote for hoping in riches is generosity. Generosity. Back in the fall, just a few months ago, I did something I've been doing for about eight years, I guess, now every year in the fall. I do this, I got a flu shot. Influenza is a disease that attacks primarily, it attacks our pulmonary system. It attacks our lungs. Obviously, I'm not here to talk about flu shots, but let's call this illness 
that affects the wealthy, if we can. Let's call this illness affluenza. Affluenza. Well, how do I immunize against affluenza? And the answer is generosity. With generosity. Stats prove that poor people give away a higher percentage of income than the rich. Did you hear that? Poor people give away a higher percentage of income than the rich. Why? Because most of us who are rich, and that's pretty much, again, who? Us. All right? That's us. That's because most of us haven't learned how to handle our wealth. Listen to this. In the wake of the Great Recession, which we've just come out of, the richest Americans are donating less to charity, while the poor, poorest are giving more, according to a new study. This is study was from 2014. In a, in a report released today, October 6, 2014, which is what, three, four, five months ago, the Chronicle of Philanthropy found that Americans who earned at least $200,000 gave nearly 5% less to charity in 2012 than in 2006. Higher income people tend to give proportionately less during tough economic times, says Stacy Palmer, editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Quote, she says, the downturn was a shock. The downturn in the economy was a shock to so many of them, and they've been nervous and cautious. Let me ask you, why have they been nervous and cautious? Here's the answer. Because their hope is in the wrong Place. Their hope is in their riches, their wealth. Continuing, the article said, unlike their wealthier counterparts, low and middle income Americans, those who made less than $100,000, gave 5% more in 2012 than in 2006, the Chronicle found. The poorest Americans, those who took home $25,000 or less, get this, increased their giving by nearly 17%. Quote, unquote, lower and middle income people. No people who lost their jobs or are homeless. And they worry that they themselves are a day away from losing their jobs. So they're very sensitive to the needs of other people and recognize that these years have been hard. How can the poorest the poorest, give the highest percentage? And again, the answer is because they don't trust in money. They don't have any to speak of. The side effects of being rich, arrogance, and misplaced hope and uncertainty are the same things that keep us from being, keep those who are wealth, of us who are wealthy from being good at being rich. But, the, but a life of generosity, being rich in good works, sharing, as Paul wrote, is the neutralizer to those side effects. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. Now listen to what I'm going to say. As the late, great Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, used to say, this is where the rubber meets the road. In America, we have more than most people in the world Except for the extreme poor, we have everything we need. We just lost sight of what we need it for. 
And the outcome of that kind of thinking is greed, thinking that everything I own is intended for me. John Wesley, great preacher of 300 years ago, John Wesley wrote, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it find a way into my heart. God wants you to possess your wealth, and you all have it. He wants us to possess our wealth so that we use it wisely and with it we glorify him. As Dave Ramsey said, we quoted him last Sunday, as Dave Ramsey said, God's plan works. God doesn't want you and me possessed by our wealth as was the rich young ruler in Jesus' day. So as we listen to this song, I want you to be asking within your heart, Okay, so today, what changes do I need to make with what I have? For as long as I can remember, I've always gone to church with my parents during college as a requirement of school, and after I was married until I got in, uh, turned off by the way I was treated after, uh, by a specific church after I'd had some problems. I'd always believed in God and Jesus, but even though I had been a member of many churches, really did not come to know Jesus until I became a member here at Nags Head Church. From the time I started living on my own, most of the time I was living payday to payday, or trying to figure out what to pay this month that I hadn't paid last month. This came to a head when Zella got sick and had to stop work. We put our house up for sale, but people that came looked at it had made statements to the realtor and to us that they would just wait until it was uh, being foreclosed on, then they could pay a price they wanted that was smaller than what we were asking. Because of this, we filed bankruptcy and sold the house for what we were asking, but just enough to pay our bills. We then started using credit cards to pay for medical expenses, and even though Zella was on disability and had Medicare, she was not eligible for Medicaid, and she was on our uh, insurance policy at work to cover the co-payments. This was fine until the town switched to a health care savings account that the federal government would not let her um, stay on. When Zella passed and I was settling the estate, I found everything that most of the credit cards had been charged off, hospital bills, medical bills, and all were on my credit report, some of which I didn't know about. When I first came to the church, there was a day that a difference between needs and wants was talked about, and if everything you gave, <coughs> and if you gave everything to Jesus and let him lead the way, then things would get better. I think this was when I really started to understand what it meant to follow and give a life for Jesus. I spoke with Bernie about what was going on and asked what I could, the best way to handle and tackle the problems uh, at that time that seemed like an insurmountable amount of debt. Bernie advised me that I needed to strive uh, to give 10 back, 10% back to the Lord and tithe and that if I started doing this and did it regularly and didn't see an improvement after three months in the town uh, church would give back the money that I had tithed at 10%. In January of 2003, I started to give to 10%, even if I had to go without needing or something else I wanted. It really forced me to look at what I was spending money on and whether, I need, whether it was a need or a want and what was necessary. During the first three months, I talked to all the hospitals, doctors' offices, and medical places, and got set up payments um, so I could pay everything off on a schedule, as Bernie had suggested. At the end of 2013, I had paid regularly all year and found that I had paid uh, about 75% of what was owed, and that 
Most of the places wrote off the balances and reported to the credit bureau that all the bills were paid and accounts were up to date. I then started to work with credit cards by paying on the ones with higher balances first and moving down and adding money to others as I got uh, the first ones paid off. In doing this, by the middle of 2014, I had all the credit card balances paid off. This left one large charge-off item on the credit report, and I found I had a chance uh, to get a loan from the credit union to consolidate this and a 401k loan that I had. Um, and with the amount of money that from the credit union, I'd be paying about the same thing I was paying on the 401k loan. I went to the clerk's office in Manier to get a copy of the judgment uh, to take to the credit union and was told that the char charge off had been canceled and the cancellation had never been reported to the credit agencies to be taken off my credit rating. Again, Bernie helped me in advising how to file protests and get this changed. I guess the point of this uh, long speech is that since January of 2013, when I started to give back to Jesus, he let, let, let him lead me things, things have gotten so much better. Whenever I think I would have to cut something out to make sure I could give my 10%, money would arrive from somewhere. I know this was Jesus, Jesus giving back to me, and I give him credit for uh, being where I am. To recap it, I went from being in so much debt I could not see the end of a long tunnel and living from payday to payday when, my, when I gave my life to Jesus. Today, my credit report is getting better. For the first time in 10 years, I have a credit card, and I, if I use it, I always make sure I pay it off the next day. I give 10% as a tithe every payday and more when I can. I now have a saving account with almost a month's salary in it, and my checking account at least has one paycheck balance in it for emergencies. I'm completely out of debt now for the first time since I got out of college. All this has happened in two years. It may be common for some people, but this is amazing to me as I look back and reflect on my life. And all the credit has to go to Jesus as he has provided as I has given to him. And I just want to thank you, uh, Rick, for inviting me to the church the first time and to all the partners in the church for the way they have made me feel like I've walked into a home from the first time I walked through the doors. Next Sunday, we're going to get... Um really practical, and I'm going to share with you how you can develop a generous lifestyle right now. You don't have to wait. I'm going to talk about having a plan for giving so that we can make the most of what God blesses us with so that we can share it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the, the songs that we've sung to give you praise and to worship you and for the opportunity we've had to spend a little time with one another, but more importantly, Father, the time that we've spent with Jesus today, um, listening to his words uh, to a man that trusted in the wrong things. May we learn to put our total trust in you and be amazed. I'm amazed at Ben's story. There are other people who, in this room, Father, right now who are in the same predicament today that Ben was in just a few years ago. And Lord, he's living proof. As Ramsey, Dave Ramsey said, your plan works. So help us, Father, to seek to live in your will for your glory with everything that we have. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God love others, reach the world.